Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is Tom Newman and Eric Renahan here at Hawk and Talking Force. Um, listen, we just want to really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to us today. We're excited. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, we're going to go through some pretty technical stuff, so uh, be, be ready. Uh, but we're also going to try to put it in a meaningful format for everyone. So that way you have a chance to be able to apply some of the stuff we're talking about, give yourself a little bit of a competitive advantage, but also have some fun uh, along the way. So uh, with that, I'd like to introduce Eric. Eric, how are you? Good. How are you, Tom? Good. What do you got cooking over at your gym? What are you guys up to these days? Um, just finished up our uh, NFL veterans offseason and we got our NBA pre-draft stuff going on and NBA vets starting to trickle in with the NHL guys. So we got a lot on the go and we should be uh, having a pretty big uh, summer offseason here in California. Nice. And for those who don't know, just to remind everybody, give a shout out just kind of where you guys are located. Yeah, we're in Irvine, California. So we're in Orange County, um, you know, basically sandwiched between Newport Beach and Laguna Beach. So we're in a pretty good off-season spot for most of these guys. And it's a nice place to be pretty much all year round. Nice. And, and before there, uh, before you got there, where, where were you? Yeah, so uh, prior to uh, coming out here, I was with the St. Louis Blues. Uh, I was with them for the last four years. And uh, before that, I was with the Vancouver Canucks for um, almost four, four seasons. And then, um, you know, before that was with the San Jose Sharks. So it kind of come full circle back to California. Yeah. I know one of the things that I thought was really interesting and in, in the few times that we've, we've connected is, uh, just your experience of really, really complicated scientific things, um, in the daily practice. And I think that that is often the, the struggle that many practitioners have, um, researchers have, and, and we kind of don't have a middle ground. Um, I know there's certain times I'll read certain research where I'm like, you know, I get it. I understand your N of 12, your N of 10. Um, but that's just not how the gym works. Um, and then conversely, I've seen things in the gym where, you know, you have to ask yourself, uh, you know, did that, was that successful? Did that work because of your stimulus or in spite of? And so, uh, I really appreciate some of our conversations we had had over the last couple of weeks here of just kind of really taking a deep dive and, and kind of being open-minded, um, to not only, objectively what you see um, in practice, but also being grounded in science and then coming back to that pre and post testing. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts today as we kind of jump into this. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think the the big thing for us is that the science has to be uh, what drives our processes. And if we don't use sound method, we, you know, we're going to potentially lead our athletes in the direction that's not going to benefit them. So, I mean, that's, that's our first and foremost priority for our, uh, how we operate is really using the, the scientific method to drive uh, our operations. Yeah. When you say that though, how do you, uh, how do you respond to some of the people who say, maybe, you know, I'm not a numbers chaser, you know, I'm old school. What do you, what do you say to that? Cause again, uh, I can think of several programs that, you know, they still use whiteboards. They still kind of, you know, get the clipboards out or some version of Excel that everybody's always claiming they're making their own database at some point. Um, I don't think they use access anymore, but uh, probably Google Drive. What, what do you say to that, though? Because, again, being kind of at the tip of the spear where you guys are at, that if uh, someone gets hurt, that, that's millions of dollars um, possibly on the line. So very, very high consequences. Um, maybe not the same level of intensity um, financially, but certainly for a high school coach or uh, an aspiring younger college coach, um, there is a tremendous responsibility if people get hurt. Um, and, it, you know, at best, there's an underperformance. Um, you can live the fight another day. But how, what do you say to that, to maybe some of the, the naysayers on this whole kind of 
everything about the numbers and data. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my, my response to that would be the, the data isn't making the decision. I'm still making the decision on what we're doing. The data is just giving me a little bit more information to make a more practical decision for the individual athlete that's standing in front of me. And when we do that, we're able to eliminate much of the guesswork when it comes to figuring out what this athlete needs, but uh, from an individual perspective, and then, you know, what are their key attributes for the position that they play and the sport that they play? And then, you know, blending that all together and having data to inform us of what, how these athletes are adapting and how they're responding to the, the stimulus that we're providing them is, is very important. And, you know, I think that if you uh, are not willing to utilize that information, then you still play that game of guessing and trying to figure out what's working best by trial and error. And it just, we don't have that luxury right now to do that. Yeah. No, I understand that. And, and, you know, again, it's that fine balance. It's, it's funny when people talk about data, uh, it's usually exclusionary. It's that, you know, common sense is supposed to go out the window. And again, at the end of the day, if you're starting quarterback or if your team's, you know, top striker, um, you know, tests off the charts, but you look at them and you know that maybe they got something going on at home. Maybe they just failed an exam. Maybe they, who knows, any number of things, data provides you clarity. Um, it doesn't lock you in. And I think that's probably some of the problems, some of these companies that want to make proprietary algorithms um, that 100% make the decisions for you. I, I don't know a single strength coach, you know, that wants to be told how they, you know, need to do their job. You want to inform and you want to educate and make, you know, clarity and, and guided decisions um, in each of your actions. But um, I don't know why people do that. It's uh, it's interesting. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, I think it, uh, a lot of it, you know, you talk to um, other coaches and it's, you, you don't want to be the guy that makes the wrong decision. So if you have something there that tells you, okay, if you see this, then do that, then you aren't responsible necessarily for what might occur. And I think that that puts it, that puts coaches into a situation where you, you better be right with the data that you're using and you better be right with the technology that you've chosen. So with, with that, I, I still think that having that data to inform your staff or, or your, um, your athletes of, you know, how they're adapting and how they're responding. I think that puts you in a better situation for having conversations that are going to allow for the athletes to have ownership over the program and have more intent when they're engaging in the program, because they understand that this information is giving them the, the roadmap to improve as opposed to, um, you know, the coach just trying to figure out what they think is going to be best and then hoping that the athlete trusts them to, to make those adaptations. You may, you, you've said it now a couple of times. I want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, you keep talking about data and adaptations. Um, adaptations being a dynamic state. And we'll dig a little bit deeper into this, even further into the segment, but you don't talk about end state. And I thought that was really interesting. Could you, when, why do you focus so much specifically on the adaptations? And we think about most people when they talk about data, it's, it's finite or it's the, the end. Okay. This is their bench max. This is their squat max. Where, where do you kind of uh, pick up with this idea and, and how do you use that to kind of drive some of your decisions? Cause again, I mean, if you're looking at every single person, and how they're handling stuff. I mean, that can be kind of cumbersome. So a, how do you manage that? And B, you know, why do you focus so much on that? 
I think adaptations is, is a, I use that term because I think we're always trying to find ways to, to improve. You know, we, we may find a certain quality or characteristic with an athlete that we dial in on and we really emphasize in a certain training phase. And as that, that quality improves, then we have now a, a redirection into another quality or another characteristic that we want to now focus on and, and try to elevate. And so when I look at adaptations, it means to me, we're always improving. We're always trying to find ways to get better. Um, you know, that's not just an off season model. I mean, when I was working in the NHL, it was the same thing. If we were with these athletes for nine to 10 months out of the year, there is no reason in my mind that we could not improve on something. So when we use this data, whether it's force plates, whether it's um, a Dyna speed, what, you know, a contact grid, whatever it might be, that information should provide us with some sort of information that will allow us to make more informed decisions. And when we do that, we can see adaptations occur. How, how do the athletes respond? Do they respond well? Are the athletes being affected from time on ice, time on the field, time on the court? Are they are responding from the training stimulus? Are they fatigued? The, the information is endless. And so when I look at that, I, I, I think adaptation, how are we changing? How are we flowing with the, the season? How are we flowing with the way that the athletes are being utilized within the season? Well, but how do you handle that though? You just mentioned that it's overwhelming or there's just, a, I forget the exact word you just used there, but how do you handle that? I mean, that seems again, I think anyone listening to this knows about as technology comes on board, uh, usually it's the following things. One, it's a new technology. So I have to learn how to use it. Uh, two, usually there has to be a dedicated person to do it. Um, I'm understaffed. I don't have a big enough budget. And frankly, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to be able to manage that. How, how do you guys handle if there's this kind of sea of data? How, how can you like boots on the ground at the rack level handle that? Yeah, I think the first thing is to integrate your processes into your training environment. I mean, that's, that was the method that I followed it. You know, if we are going to use this information from this technology, it needs to be seamlessly integrated into our training environment and needs to be part of our program. So that was the first thing that, that really helped us establish a, a process around using technology. And I think the next uh, and most probably the most important piece is really trying to simplify what you want to look at first, get really good at a few things, start to understand what those things mean. And then as you get buy-in from the athletes, as you see that information provide use in terms of your programming and the direction that you're going with your program, then you can expand on other aspects of the technology or incorporate other pieces of technology into that flow. Yeah, no, you bring up a good point. It makes me also think too, as you mentioned, you know, what attributes matter. I feel like a lot of coaches, uh, and I say this from strength and conditioning, from sport coaches to clinicians, medical, uh, rehab, everybody, I feel like everybody has their own metrics. And so sometimes, you know, again, the strength coach is trying to push maxes. Um, you know, a physio might be trying to go a different direction. The, the sport coach just wants nobody to get hurt. Um, and so instead of being a unifier, it can actually sometimes create silos and, and you can get kind of defensive because again, it's this yin and yang. And I, and I think too, I think this is where you got to kind of talk about from a, from a scouting standpoint, what metrics matter, but also what can you change? I mean, I can tell you at my time um, at Yale, we had for every single position in the, the sport of football um, in men's lacrosse, specific parameters that were go, no go things. So for instance, you could have the most heart in the world. And I, I really appreciate people that talk about, you know, this person's got heart. Well, that's great because he's a left tackle and he's five, two, there's no amount of heart 
that is going to translate at that size and length because again games of sport are tactics and strategies at velocities um, and speeds and so if your lever arms are at such a disadvantage and, and i say that because it's not just the height and 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 people get locked into this oh one metric i always think too about the 40 yard dash you know the proverbial always you know everybody's a four four in high school i don't know it's, it's crazy I, I don't know what it is if i'm just like bad karma or whatever i've just you know in the 40 inch verticals i've seen a lot of verts and it just you would think at some point with all these kids online uh that post it um you know i would see one but i, I just don't see it with the same frequency and again some things you just have to have. I can tell you, we could tell you whether or not by looking at the size of your ring finger, we could look at your shoes. Uh, we had different modeling of just how big you could get, how much muscle you could get. And there's things that we can change. Um, and I think this is also too from a, where, you know, you know, you could really work on your collaboration is getting strength and conditioning coaches involved with those conversations. What is your current team at? You know, in, in the past, and I've done consulting, people say, well, we got to go find this superstar. Well, maybe you don't need a superstar at left guard. Maybe you just need a, just a person above average. And maybe you need to move that average along the way. But realizing what are your strengths as a coach? You know, people, I, you know, I think all the time is, you know, what can we do to get fast? I mean, your best shot to get fast is if you have parents that played professional sports. If your mom and dad played sports, you have a better shot than if mom and dad were, you know, librarians. Nothing against librarians. There might be some fast ones out there, but the point is there's a huge component. Could you talk a little bit about that on some of the things that you've seen both, you know, either at the rack or maybe you've seen on the plates of just things that they're really kind of hard to move, um, you know, and, and really you're kind of stuck with it um, right off the get. What, what would some of those things be? Yeah. I mean, I think the genetics is certainly kind of the, your, your biggest hurdle, right? Like you get an athlete that comes in and, you want to make them faster, jump higher. And this is, I mean, this is so common when you, you're working with combine classes, you, know, you got to, we got to get that 40 time down. We got to get that bench up. We got to get that jump height up and you are really limited by genetics. And so when you look through what this athlete's boxes are that need to be checked off, you have to really consider, you know, what, what's the ceiling on, on the box and how much can we check off? So, you know, when I look at athletes being, um, you know, the 40, for example, I need to get faster. I need to get my time into this zone. So I get, you know, they can be drafted in the second round or higher. You, you really have to consider, you know, that there, there's probably either a good chance of that happening or a poor chance of that happening and being realistic about that. And, you know, when I look at qualities, you know, one of the big things that I feel is uh, the, the hardest thing to improve is to make a, a non-explosive athlete explosive. And what do you mean by that? I mean, other than I look at him and they look explosive. When you say explosive, what metric are you specifically thinking of? I mean, you know, like you look how much how much force can an athlete produce per kilo? I mean, that's a good metric for me in terms of letting me know how much acceleration can I expect out of this athlete? How how could well? Could you just break that down a little bit, though, for so people that's listening and maybe they again know from super explosive to uh, you know we like to joke a tomato or potato, not explosive. What, what, what do those numbers look like? What ranges from zero to a thousand, you know, 50 to 70? What, what are we talking about? Just where the, the distribution, like, what are we talking about with that? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it's going to range from sport to sport. I think, you know, one of my, the, the big things when it comes to, you know, how we create our baselines and how we, um, our thresholds or our cutoffs for our athletes is really based off of uh, the sport and the position that they play. So there's going to be certain characteristics that we 
see with athletes in terms of their ability to um, create force, sustain force, how rapidly they initiate their force production. Um, you know, so if I'm looking at a, a, a NBA player, for example, and I'm looking at say like a power forward, I, I want at least 250% of body weight on relative uh, propulsive force. I want to make sure that this athlete is two and a half times, almost three times, um, able to put force into the surface relative to how much they weigh, because I know that that athlete's going to be able to explode and they're going to be able to transition uh, either vertically or horizontally very effectively. So when I look at, you know, these thresholds, that, no, that number is unique to a specific position in a specific sport. Now that might change from a hockey player uh, that plays defense or a pitcher. But I think when we look at these thresholds, it's important to have enough longitudinal data to be able to say, if this athlete is this position and we want to either include him in our assessment process or exclude them from uh, our assessment process, because we don't think that they have the capability to be successful in that role, they are, you know, we need to have that longitudinal data to be able to back that decision-making process. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we were really fortunate at Yale. I mean, frankly, we were spoiled. Um, Bill Kramer, uh, local uh, would come out uh, he has a house out in Connecticut and he would come and and visit and, and stop by once in a while and he would talk to us about this idea of mutable traits and unmutable traits and so that stemmed from some of the work and again it goes way back but particularly if you look at the early 2000s with UConn uh, with coach Jerry Martin Andrea Hootie that whole time really getting into understanding how I almost think of uh, levers or light switches turning things on turning things off and Again, I think where you really learn is the sequencing. So you can have the best program in the world. It's just the wrong time, you know, developmentally, annually, to calendar wise, um, and really thinking about that. And I remember him always just talking about things are either synergistic. So if I want to make things better, I can pair them together um, or I can make it worse. You know, if I want to, you know, kill someone's um, hypertrophy block, I'll just go send them out for a ton of long runs. And again, let those two things kind of collide. And there's a famous video, if you're listening, looking at, you know, the compatibility, I believe it was the one of the ACSM, it's on YouTube, um, but really kind of hammering back into when you really talk about the trained level, not just exercising where you're flapping around and sweating and yep, you, you are moving and burning calories. When you talk about taking someone to a higher than normal baseline level, you really need to be precise and not only what you're doing, but what else the individual's doing? I mean, it's a razor's edge of high performance, you know, and catastrophic overtraining, either acutely or chronically to dig out of. Could you talk about just some of the sequences that you think of, of things, you know, you mentioned there that, you know, um, the, the wattage per kilo, what are some of the things that if you went in order, or if you were a coach and you're beginning to think about that, going from things you cannot change um, to things that, yeah, you actually, with a good coach, with a good staff, you can make a dent in What would you say that sequence would look like? And, and where would you kind of even start? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the big thing for us, there's the low hanging fruit is what, what can the athlete do on their own? That's very easy for them to control. And I think we start with sleep and regeneration and nutrition. And those, those are our foundational pieces for our athletes. And it's, it's critical for them to understand that the, no matter what they do, whether it's being active, training hard, playing in a lot of minutes or not playing a lot of minutes and not being active and not training hard, the recovery is going to impact them. So we really want to emphasize that in uh, our athletes from day one. 
Um, the next piece I think that we have the, I think the, the best ability to um, impact is, is the metabolic aspects of the sport that they play. Because I think from a, a metabolic perspective, we can use time, intensity, duration, and mode of training to really impact how well the athletes can either sustain thresholds or return to um, base indicators between shifts, for example, in hockey or between periods or, you know, during timeouts and breaks that I think we have a little bit more control over. And then I think that the hardest part is the, the, the mechanical side that, you know, being able to, like I said earlier, take a, an athlete that maybe just doesn't have the genetics to be able to produce a lot force or produce force very quickly and turn that athlete into a, a quick forceful athlete i think that's our you know again genetics is our limiting factor there and i think that's the hardest thing to do and that's where i feel that data it can contribute the most to informing us as coaches on our decision making i uh, know I, I i completely agree and i and i just wonder though you know we know and i, I always you know again going back to recruiting um at yale or any of you know our customers there is a you know time and cost sense like it takes time to build somebody it takes you know money it takes protein it takes sleep it takes mentoring and all of that and so when we go through and and you know we we had some pretty extensive modeling that we did to be able to get these high confidence scores and i say that not that there's no guarantee um in any and that's kind of the beautiful beautiful part of sport is there's no guarantee of anything there's high confidence moderate and then low confidence and when we go in and we've set up everything right we've brought in the right people and, you know, now we get them in front of the coaches. That's really the best model I can think of, of getting the coaches in front of that kid. Cause we can give you someone who jumps out of the gym, metabolically gifted, but if they don't want to practice, if they don't love team, they don't love process, the coach needs to get on that right away. And I, and I don't think you can supersede that. And again, it's never an end of one. It's how do these things work together? And I always think of a, a sliding scale, if you will, a magic quadrant. You know, if someone's super athletic, think of average high school guy that just shows up, you can get away with that. But I think as the talent level and specifically the rewards, whether it's financial recognition or whatever, um, the pyramid gets pretty steep at the top. And so getting coaches in front of the right people to then do those deeper dives, I can't think of a better way to do it. I don't know what your thoughts are, because, again, you, you've had uh, the luxury to both do from a private sector, but then also with teams. Why do you think more teams don't get involved uh, as far as using it, some of these metrics and, and kind of coordinating with the um, strength staffs on, on what they think is a good fit? I think it's a, it has a lot to do with contracts. I think it has a lot to do with uncertainty in terms of, the, you know, if, if a, a scout or a general manager really has a strong opinion on an athlete that they want to sign and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're providing them with, you know, some objective information that uh, is the, maybe the opposite of what they think, you know, you get into these debates of, you know, is it, is, is this really correct information? And, you know, I've been doing this for, I've been a scout for 20 years. I know what a good player is going to be. And, you know, that's where I feel like a lot of the, the teams that have this, the, the staff uh, to be able to crunch data, the performance staff that knows how to utilize data and be able to utilize this type of information. Those are the teams that are, are sustaining success long-term because they have 
the, the upper management, the administrators that are willing to take that information in and use it as part of the decision-making process. And it might not be the one thing that uh, puts the, the player over the edge in terms of being signed or not signed, but it contributes to the overall picture. And I feel like those are the teams that really are able to sustain success long-term because they can find the players that are going to fit their model and they're, they're going to fit their systems of play more effectively than just the best player available, let's say in the free agency class. And I think that's really where um, that conversation needs to go for people to really find the right fit for their team, as opposed to who they think is the best player that, that often um, backfires because, you might get the guy that scored 50 goals for one team, but you play a completely different style and system of play and, and they just don't mesh with their teammates. And now you've just signed the player for seven years and pay them $10 million and they're not effective for what your team's you know, systems and style of player. I love how you hit on systems um, because I think that's really it is when we go talk about any of these processes, they're not independent. I mean, you can, but then again, it's just hopefully you get a couple good players and maybe it's four years and reload, or maybe you get lucky, but really those, I think to the NBA, the NFL, NHL, when you look at there's, there's a, there's a process, there's a process in place that again, that process may be ever evolving as well. Um, and, and I, and I think about, you know, some of the stuff we worked on this spring with some of our new reporting is um, being able to display these multiple domains. Maybe I want to look at their velocity and I want to look at their landing force, or maybe I want to do it to, you know, show, um, you know, that coach, that grizzled coach that you talked about has been doing it for 25 years. Cause there is often this battle. And I think that sometimes sport coaches feel as if uh, the tech generation wants to tell them how they've been doing their job wrong. And I think, in, in fact, uh, I don't think you can, I can't think you can ever replace experience, but what we can do is with proper systems and technology is speed up that sorting algorithm. I know one of the uh, things I like doing, I know I'm a nerd, uh, but studying sort algorithms, if you go look at the bubble sort, I mean, bubble sort was a classic sort used in computer science of, you know, A versus B. And then, you know, if this one's bigger, I put that one on that side. Okay. And the sort, but you have to A, B the entire process. And the problem is, yeah, you know, if, if all of us, if three of us walk to the, you know, walk to the gym, you know, I drive a car, you take a scooter and I walk. Yeah, we might all get there at the same time, but every sport is on a clock. And there is something to be said, if you can get your team to that final destination to then begin the tough questions that take time, you're going to have a lot more time evaluating than that person who walks, you know, and got there, but you know, he only has now 15 minutes where the rest of your staff's been there. And I think that's probably a better way to look at it. Um, when we start combining data is getting all the players speaking that same language. So. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think one of the things that I found to be a very uh, successful strategy when trying to integrate technology was to really find out from the general manager, from the coaching staff, from the, the, the people that really had made decisions with the personnel was what's important to you in looking at players. Like, what do you deem important? And what, what do you do you if you don't for? know, though? What do you do if you don't know? Because right. I think sometimes people sit around the room. It's like, well, just tell me. I'm sure you've had a few people ask you throughout your time. All right, well, what should we be looking at? And then, you know, okay, great. What's good? And how do we make it whatever we got better? How, what do you do if you don't even know where to start? Yeah, no, and that, when you, that's that conversation starter. I mean, so when I was with the Canucks, one of the things that we did was we, we had a really – nice opportunity there to utilize the, the, the hockey operations department and the data analysts within that department to figure out statistically what does an elite player look like in each position 
on um, you know game related statistics. And so what we started to do is we looked at those game related statistics that the team valued as important indicators for success for defensemen, wingers, centermen, two-way centermen, goalies, et cetera. And then what we started to do is we looked at the data that we had in our database and we said, okay, if this a defenseman that have these statistics are successful, let's look at which defensemen in our organization have those. And then let's take a look at how they move. What's their capacity? What is their strategy in terms of movement? And let's start to figure out what characteristics or nuances they have that make them elite physically. And if there's a match, then we knew we had a trend. So we started to do that. And that's where we were able to start to create profiles for our athletes because those, those elite players statistically were resembling each other within their positional groups on their physical characteristics. And it made it easy for us to start to say, okay, if we drop this player and they don't exhibit these characteristics, this is the likelihood of success within that positional group. If we decide to either make a trade for that player or draft that player. And that's really where we've been able to kind of build off of that. And uh, you know, that, that was born from having those conversations. What's important to you? What, what do you look for in a player? How do you pick these players? Yeah. I think your, your point on profiling um, is really important and often overlooked. I can't tell you the number of times where, okay, we're going to do a vertical jump test. So you run the vert and then you go in, you jump and then you take the highest score. You give it to the sport coach. What's the first thing out of their mouth? Well, that person can jump, but they're not my best player. Yeah. And I, and I think you really have to go the opposite way and say, okay, who are the best players? Cause at the end of the day, hopefully you're using these different, you know, assets, attributes, and characteristics in the weight room or in the field or whatever your training area is to elicit some sort of in-game production. And, you know, when you go and you look at that, you know, it may not be just vertical jump. It may actually be power, especially if you have, you know, one group, say you have, um, again, in rugby, uh, a prop may never jump as high as someone up front. And so, but you might see that there's actually how they get there is different, but there is, there's actually a similar, uh, similar profile of peak power or whatever that number is. But I think really starting back. And I think this is something that many strength coaches struggle with. I don't care if someone's super, super great and sets a PR, I could care less. What I want to know is that they're not a liability. So, and if you go back to any of the military uh, studies and, and just, and just general strategies, you know, if I've got five weaknesses and you, you're excellent uh, at everything, but you've got uh, 20 weaknesses and I'm average of everything else, you're actually the greater liability just because, again, there's more vulnerability. So if you kind of go from a reverse angle saying, what is that cutoff? You know, I have vertical jumps of 30 inches, 35 inches. Well, you know what? Really being above 24 is what we had to do. So if I've got a superstar, you know, they may not be the best, but they're not deficient. Or if they're right on that bubble, you could kind of interject some training to kind of get them over the hump. That's how you can really manufacture um, some on-field talent. But to your point, if you don't know what you're looking for, um, you very quickly can just get yourself into a very confusing mess and nobody's on the same page. Yeah, no, I think you, you touched on earlier when you, when you talked about uh, the synergistic relationship and between how you either program for an athlete depending on what you're trying to accomplish. And I think I look at, you know, force, force data in a similar fashion, you know, the relationship between the, the variables that you decide to unpackage from the force tracing is key. Right. And you, like you said, you may have a very, very good jump height, but 
everything leading up to the jump height except for this one thing or deficient well you may have a very good output but you cannot sustain that output potentially and you may be at risk for underlying pathology that you know it has not become catastrophic but very well could if there's not an intervention made and so the relationship between the, the variables and the, the strategy within that output that you're able to measure I think that's more important to me. And that's, again, uh, you know, you, we could have athletes on our team, you know, back, I look back at some of the guys on the blues, they, they may not have been the most impressive. They may not have been the most uh, uh, fast of skaters, but they were the most consistent. They were the best at recovering. They were the most dialed in when it came to taking care of themselves. So they were in the lineup all the time. Now, the guys that were sometimes most impressive on some of the things that we were able to measure oftentimes did not take care of themselves, did not stay in the lineup regularly because they were getting hurt. So at the end of the day, if you're not in the lineup, you're not going to be an effective team player at that point. And so when I look at that, I think it's a, it's a very similar idea to what you just described. Yeah. You, you know, you make me think about as you're describing some of those players, I, I remember being so excited. I had done this deep analysis and studied all these metrics and I went into the lacrosse office and, you know, again, coach Shea is, uh, one of a kind. And, you know, certainly I'm sure, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be in the hall of fame someday and and his openness. And, and again, having that kind of old school, tough blue collar mentality, but being very open to data, he sat down and listened to this presentation I was going to give. And I'll, I'll never forget our D coordinator, uh, love him to death. Uh, Andrew Baxter, now the head coach at Fairfield for men's lacrosse. And he just looked at me, he goes, Newman, he's like, you know what the best ability is? I was like, what? He goes, availability. And then we started talking about that, you know, no matter what you put in front of the coach, statistically, if you don't play in the games, you will be less productive than if you do. So even yeah. if you are less gifted or less, not the top at any one thing, but you're out there every single day, you're learning how you're learning team chemistry, you're learning X's and O's. And again, that clock is running versus you're super gifted. And yeah, when you're in, it's electric. But if you're only in for 30% of the games, again, it just, it's an economic model that doesn't work. So I always laugh whenever I think about metrics, I can still hear him laugh when he uh, told that to my face about, yeah, the best ability is availability. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in the pursuit of pushing numbers forward. Yeah. How, how do you look on, you know, that third shift, you know, and if that sure. is catastrophic or below average or not where it needs to be, I mean, maybe that's the focal point. For sure. And I think that, you know, we go, we go, we can go even deeper and, and talk about, you know, does this, does this guy fit the, does he fit in with his teammates? Because again, at that, that you get down to those, you know, those last couple of games and you go into the playoffs and you're really trying to make a push for a championship. If that player, you know, doesn't want to play with his teammates, doesn't matter how good he is, even if he's in the lineup, because he doesn't want to play. He doesn't have that motivation to do what he needs to do to help contribute to the success of the team. And, you know, there's so many factors that are involved in that. And, you know, it's, I think I look at, I look at the player holistically and I just think, man, if, if we did so many different things with this athlete and the one thing that's preventing him from being successful is, you know, he doesn't sleep at night or he's, you know, doesn't like his teammates or his line mates or whatever it might be. It doesn't matter what we do. Right. So, you know, there's just so many factors involved in, in success. And I think, um, you know, but being aware of those things is key. Just being aware. 
Yeah, I think that's really, again, too, where that's where the coach's eye, that experience of just knowing. I can't tell you the number of times I'd go to conferences and people would say, if you have these following metrics, you know, you're going to be, you know, you're going to have a great player on your hand. And it's like, right, until you find out they don't want to stick their face in the B gap and get smashed by someone running full speed at them. And, and again, that's where, you know, as I look kind of at the market, you know, you remember people used to actually watch tape you know, and then huddle kind of came in and said, no, we're going to put tape online. I love that guys still call it tape, but whatever. Um, and then you started getting analytics off of tape and then tape became, you know, cr critical for recruiting. Like I uh, just, again, yeah. the amount of film that has to be consumed by the coaches. Um, I can't imagine going back to discs and tape and it's just becoming part of it. And I think too, when we start looking at metrics of things that we just know, if we've done our homework, the amount of efficiency and time that you can have really is unprecedented. And I don't, I just don't know how you're going to plan on competing moving forward when, you know, this stuff is just so blatant and, and, and it's physics, it's simple physics. There's a romance in sport. Um, but at the end of the day, it's individuals moving at, you know, above average speeds and velocities in, in, in the population that also love the game. And then they have the creative aspects and that platform to do it. So I just, uh, I can't imagine having to try to go back and I'm excited to see kind of where the field goes moving forward. Yeah. No, I think it's funny. Like we have, a, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in my sit the situation here in Irvine. I mean, we have, I mean, we have several uh, dual force plate setups. We have Qualysys mocap systems. We have DynaSpeeds. I mean, we have, if, if it exists, we probably have it. And I'm very fortunate in that sense. And, you know, we, we were responsible for the NFL combine prep for the draft class with rep one this year. And we had 12 athletes um, and, literally every call I got from team scouts in the NFL first question, second question, third question I got from them was what kind of guy is this guy? Is this guy a good dude? How is he in the weight room? Does he try hard? They didn't ask about his jump high. They didn't ask how fast he ran the 40 or what was his pro agility time. So those things we knew were important were how do you work? How do you recover? What kind of guy are you going to be when you get to the team that drafts you? And so we really made that a, a priority, like I said earlier, and, the other stuff was, you know, the easy stuff for us. Let, let's train hard. Let's figure out what we think is most important. And let's use some data to help drive that decision. But, you know, the teams didn't care. They didn't ask, they, you know, they did not reach out to me about, the, again, jump heights or 40 times. It was, is this guy a good guy? Was he good with the other guys in the group? Do you think he's coachable? Those are, those are traits that I think really contribute to success probably more than anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm laughing as I think of on recruiting trips, people would come and say, you know, I love football. Like, Oh, really, really great. You love, you love games. Oh, I love games. Cool. All right. Well, what about work? Ah, well, you know, I'm okay. Well, you know, again, there's 10 games in the fall lacrosse would have 14 plus whatever the playoffs were. There's a lot of days where you're not doing this thing you love. And it's good that you have a passion and excitement, but you have to really want to be a grinder. You have to be someone that wakes up in the morning and thinks about what are the things that I can do today to better myself. And more specifically, I think really your top performers are individuals that focus on the team that take pride in the championship. If you get good stats, you get good stats, but really they're more driven by the success of the, of the unit or of the group. And I, I don't know. I just think that's where, I see the field going because all the other stuff, like you, you said, the coaches already expected that, you right. know, those other things were good and that they were going forward, but it's who's going to be able to dig out an extra 5% here, or, you know, do they want to be coached hard? Or are they going to implode as soon as someone comes in and gives them an authoritative voice and says, we're not doing that today. Sure. You know, it's gotta be a yeah. struggle. So I agree.
Yeah, I think that's the, uh, those are the things that, you know, where you blend the art and science, right? The art of coaching and that coach's eye. And then, you, you know, you hope that science can help either, you know, continue leading you in that direction or provide you with at least enough information to say, okay, I think this is not what we really need to do. So, you know, I think it's that, that really uh, unique blend of, of that experience and that ability you to use technology when you need it. Yeah, I think getting guys to, you know, be able to enjoy every aspect of it. You know, typically we'd have players on any sport. I want, I want to get fast. So I always think back to the quote from uh, Coach Boyd Epley is, you know, you've been a great mentor and a great friend to me. And I said, you know, what did you guys do? We think back to the, the Husker days. And he said, oh, it's simple. You know, we would squat and we'd squat heavy and then we'd squat heavy fast. And so I laughed that that is an idea that is a uh, throwback to the 80s and 90s where, it was a sequence of things. You know, when I think of squat, I think of mobility. Can you do it? Do you have tissue issues? Do you have anything like that? Okay. Squat heavy. Got it. You get to get someone who can make force, but it didn't just keep squatting heavy for the sake of that. Then they would switch into this idea of squat heavy fast. And I know one of the things that frustrated me is people come and say, you oh, know, velocity-based training. Well, that doesn't mean you're just going to get strong by lifting light weights. I mean, again, there's things it does do, but there's also things it does not. And, and let's not forget many athletes struggle. They don't know what, you know, 0.3 meters per second. They don't know what 0.5 meters per second feels like just under the time. And, and I think that all of those things connect together and you just might have some people, I love lifting heavy or, you know what, don't put anything heavy on my back. And, and what is heavy and how does that relate specifically to the performance you know, where do you kind of see some of that stuff now of kind of that, that, that logic of mobility move, uh, can or cannot, whatever that cutoff is on your strength and then being able to apply it. Cause I think that's one of the things that's really fascinated me, uh, again, with kind of the plates has been, is it, yeah, you can measure the output, but what was your strategy to get there? And yes, you maybe got a higher output, but that strategy just cut your longevity down by, you know, 50% or whatever, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we, I think we look at the same, the, the model the same way. I think, you know, we, we want to understand, again, I use that term adaptation, but we want to understand if, if we're in a, a situation where we need to either improve mobility or regress our, our patterns of movement or progress our patterns of movement, whether that's more load or whether that's more velocity. And I think having the ability to measure all of those things is really key because it, again, we can, you know, it, with that model, say we squat. Yeah, great. Let's squat heavy. Perfect. But let's squat fast now. But when do we progress too fast from heavy? And when do we progress from lighter weight squat to, to heavy squat. And I think that's where the data and the technology helps us make those decisions on, do we move, do we push this athlete forward now, or do we keep that athlete in this phase for another week until they hit another level of adaptation? And I think that's the thing that I've, you know, I've been able to start to really dive into. And this goes back, you know, 12, 13 years now, let's progress athletes based off of merit. And let's create a meritocracy for our phases as opposed to a temporal based approach to moving athletes from strength to max strength to power. Let's, let's move them through those phases based off of what they are able to demonstrate to us as their ability and, and the measurements that we feel are important to identify those characteristics and velocity ranges will tie in with the certain quality or need uh, for an athlete based off the, again, their positional demands and the sport that they play. And that's really kind of how we program it. And it's, it's worked well for us because we can provide that, that at least 
uh, elementary level uh, information so that the athlete understands it, buys into it, and has some ownership over it so that they know that this is the intent of their program of the day. And this is why we've programmed it for them. So we really try to be transparent with that information and simplify it so that the language that we use can be used with the athlete. It can be used with the coach. It can be used with the GM. It can be used with the administrator. We don't change the terminology. We don't change the language depending on who we speak to because we want to eliminate gray area and we want to create transparency. And that, that was what I felt was uh, what made our performance department in St. Louis successful is that the athletes, the GM, the coaching staff, the medical staff, any of the people that were involved in discussions around what's going on with an athlete, the language that we used was the same. So no one came back and said, well, he told me this, but like Armin tells me this. Well, no, it's the same thing. This is the same thing that I've told all of you. And that's really important to us because we want to, we want to put ownership in the, the hands of the athlete and we want them to have intent behind their program. And if our program is 0.5 meters per second for that day, we know we are trying to improve acceleration and we want to create some intent behind it. So we need to move this load at this speed. And if you can't, then we live in that phase again until you do. And then once you hit those numbers, we'll move into, you know, phase three or phase four, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think when you say it, intent, you know, and, and, and realize too, I love it. When I ask people, how's your programming go? How's your, how's your program you wrote for your team? And, oh, it's going great. Ah, <laughs> I've written a lot of programs throughout the years. And I can tell you, if you administer a program and say it's 20 different people. There are 20 different reactions from crushed it, should have gone more, but it's okay. We'll live to fight another day to completely not ready to, they didn't even set up the crash guards. Right. And so you know, I love the idea of that merit and kind of pushing through and realizing too, that it's not linear. I think, especially early on athletes, you know, I put 50 pounds on the bar and I could put 55 the next day and I'm going to have this linear approach. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen, especially when you start talking about different domains, you know, dancing along the curve, you know, certain areas may be really hard for you. If you're naturally more forceful than you are uh, quick or twitchy. Um, yeah. Like you just, it may take a little bit longer. And, and I, typically think that a lot of athletes, especially the higher up you go, they don't like being bad at things. And so yeah. it's much easier to sit into my area where I can go crush weight and, and feel like the strong guy, uh, feel like the strong girl and, you know, live in my comfort zone. I, you know, I, I go back to a, a story is, you know, you know, when I first got to Yale, you know, we had one of these uh, players, uh, gifted, gifted athlete, super strong at 235, 245 pounds. Um, you know, he was exceptional. Um, you know, he could squat, you know, 530 legit. Um, and it looked great. And I remember coming back and saying, well, that's great. You squat more than double body weight. Now we're going to go move some, uh, we're going to move some weight fast and you can move the heaviest weight you want. And we were really big at the time um, of using uh, uh, velocity based stuff at a meter per second. And just trying to get them to their body weight. You weigh 230. I want to see you move your body weight at a meter per second. Magical things start to happen. We want to push it forward. Well, again, thinking of 30% of max, 60% of max, I'm always shocked when people are blown away that, you know, the stuff you read in the textbook doesn't always pan out. Their 60% may actually be trash. Their 30% may be trash and the curve looks different. So we always would talk about the transmission long story short, this individual committed to, you know, moving as heaviest weight as he could. And again, struggled to get body weight. However, you know, throughout the course of the off season finished moving, I believe it was, you know, 365 or 375, um, at that same body weight, that's just a better version of yourself. And even though right. I didn't really care what happened to his overall top force max, 
the usability spoke for itself and he would go on to lead the nation in sacks. It was absolutely bone crushing and terrifying. I'm so glad he was on our team. Uh, didn't have to play against them. Um, and then wound up winning defensive player of the year, you know, for those listening that, you know, you might have a coach who said, you know, Oh, you know, you should have gone to 700 or 800. Why'd you stop? Um, that inclination is that more is better. Isn't always the case. And in fact, um, the further over that kind of double body weight realm, I, I really haven't seen, a super, super dramatic transfer over to the field. And again, specifically thinking about uh, American football. And I know Dr. Ree in Alabama put out some information this summer that really talked around 1.75. I believe they were using the 1080. Uh, don't quote me on it, but um, they were using that for looking at acceleration. They really didn't see massive returns on top end speed. And then they shifted kind of to single leg work uh, and what that looked like. You know, if someone's listening, what what do you think if you had to break that down into that effect of bending the transmission? What does that look like on the plates and what metrics do you think are moving when when that's going on? Yeah, I think that there's there's certainly, um, you know, a similarity to how you're operating currently with that model. And I feel like the 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 adaptation comment earlier and the way we kind of look at progressing or regressing athletes is, is similar because when we look at an athlete that hits a certain threshold in a quality that that's, you know, statistically significant to us, then we look at now what is the weakest quality that's left in their athlete's strategy or the, the ability for this athlete to create output. And that's now where we redirect. So, you know, if we're squatting and we're looking at, you know, whether that's three times body weight, two and a half times body, whatever it might be, we're also looking at the, the velocity in that movement. And we're looking at what that output looks like when we're able to measure it on um, whether it's force plates or velocity based, or even, you know, uh, horizontal sprinting. And when we get to what we consider our threshold for that individual, and we look at where that next week is quality is and we redirect. So a lot of times that ends up being, um, you know, strategy changes within their movement pattern, or even, you know, the duration in which they can sustain force production, for example, in the force play. So if an athlete, you know, our, our original goal was to create more relative force production and they were able to exceed our standard for that athlete's position, then we look at, okay, now where is the weakest quality? Does that, does that quality now live in the timing of their, their force production? Does it live in the ability to sustain force production? Where, where do we now re redirect our programming? And with that redirection comes a, a lot of different anatomical characteristics that we're re redirecting on. So a lot of that maybe shifts from anterior chain bilateral dominant movements to posterior chain single lateral or uh, unilateral uh, dominant movements. And, you know, that's where we have to have longitudinal data. We have to have enough programming um, data and we have to enough, have enough experience as coaches to really say, okay, this is what worked well with these things. If, if this, did what we expected to do. We bank it, we keep it, and we keep trying to develop that. And if we thought this was going to work, but it didn't, what did it actually work for? And let's redirect it into that library. And so from that perspective, I agree. I think that's, you know, you, you hit what your standards are and then you look for the next week is quality. And if you can measure that, you're going to have a lot easier time making that decision on where you're going to redirect your program. Well, I mean, as you're talking through that, and I know as people have asked, you know, you know, okay, great. So your vertical jump, but you, you mentioned your, your speed or your, your takeoff. What are some metrics that translate from, you know, just the vertical position to maybe takeoff, you know, looking for proxies, you know, from, for, you know, thinking back to recruiting, if someone has a great broad jump, if someone broad jumps 10, six, or say they, 
you know, have a, you know, again, a 35, 40 inch vertical jump, one could assume they're twitchy, which one could also assume that with proper training, those people are more likely to have a, maybe a, a faster pro agility or a faster 10 yard dash, 40 yard dash, whatever your thing is. Are there any proxies that get off of it? Cause I know I've had some people say, well, I'm going to fix the force plates of the walls and then we're going to push off, or we're going to look at this or that. Is there, are there any things that from the vertical position that translate over, you know, people doing broad jumps off the plates or this, that, what, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I know that there, there's been a lot of questions. Oh yeah. So the vertical jump went well, but that's not everything, but maybe there's something there that people are missing as far as they can be little indicators of what's to come maybe in different planes. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at impulse, you're going to have a pretty good indicator for um, the velocity. If you're looking at, you know, like say rel propulsive relative um, net impulse, you're going to have, pretty much the velocity in the phase of interest, whether that's braking or propulsive. So I think if you want to understand, you know, the velocity in which your, your athlete maybe can put the, the gas pedal down or put the brakes on, you know, that's a, that's a, a pretty good indicator for, you know, how efficiently they're going to be able to do that, whether that's change of directions or whether that's, um, you know, being able to sustain, you know, create acceleration and sustain it or, or you know, continue to develop, uh, you know, top end speed when they need to. So um, the, the big thing is to really suggest to the, you know, the people that are listening to say, hey, let's, you, you need to try a few different things and, you know, have a, a gold standard that you operate off of. So what we did in the past was we, we looked at lateral jumps, you know, single leg lateral jumps, double leg broad jumps, and we looked at what what did those metrics correlate to from the counter movement jump because the counter movement jump has the most evidence of you know the most literature behind it the most evidence suggesting that these things are important for athletes so we wanted to look and see do we need to continue doing these tests and if we do let's because they're not correlating let's do that so we can create a database but a lot of times what was happening is those single leg movements were tying in with the propulsive net impulse quality because now you've said that again, just let's, let's take a, a pause for a second and do a little physics deep dive here. When you say net impulse one, it's not actually a net Two, what is an impulse and kind of break it down again, really thinking that, you know, from the listeners being, you know, potentially PhD biomechanists to the, the, the high school coach that's listening, what is it and why do I care? Yeah. So, so net impulse is, is it's essentially, it's going to give us a driver for the phase of interest and we can get that, that net mean force and time component. So really what it is, it's that for, the integral of force and time. Um, and then the relative, right. So we talked, I talked about relative uh, earlier when we were talking about force production, but relative impulse is really going to give us kind of a driver, but a bit more of a uh, output or an outcome metric, um, you know, for, for us, we want to know the velocity. So with looking at that relative, we're looking at what that ability is above body weight for that phase of interest, which essentially gives us the velocity. So when we want to understand the, in, the, the ability for an athlete to create or sustain, we want to know what that looks like for that phase of interest in terms of their impulsibility. And so when I talk about braking impulse, I'm looking at how well does this athlete put the brakes on? How well do they slow themselves down and transition out of or into different patterns. And the, you know, when I talk about propulsive, it's really about how well does this athlete put the gas pedal down? Can they actually put the gas pedal down and create some speed and acceleration when they need to? So that's a, a, a little bit of a, an example of, of how I would look at where I'm making some changes to our programming based off of the unpackaged variables from that force tracing. Now, uh, you know, you say that and, you know, immediately the first thing that comes to mind is, well, is it the same all the time? 
you know, if you measure my shoe size, it's going to be the same no matter what. And maybe if I change shoe brands, it goes up a little, down a little. We talk about athlete monitoring. And, and I know you and I have, you know, had lengthy conversations about this. It's a dynamic thing. This is not a do it in January, do it in August. But when you're talking about net impulse, could that change from day to day? Could that change, you know, week to week and, and specifically across all the different variables or whatever you choose to do, you know, what do you think about strategies for managing that? And just again, you know, day one at the rack, you're working with someone, how much confidence do you have in that data versus if you've been working with an athlete for six months and now you've been measuring each of these variables, how, how have you handled that? Um, Cause again, it's, it's not a research lab and you have to make a decision or a call right there at the rack. How, how, how much do these things fluctuate? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think impulse can really be uh, one of those variables that, that, teams and coaches can use for readiness. I think it's an indicator of how well an athlete can actually sustain force and how quickly do they initiate their force production, especially in that breaking phase. And if there's a decrease or increase in those qualities, you can safely say if you have enough data and you have enough experience with that athlete that there needs to be a conversation with that athlete on what's going on. Are they fatigued? Are they banged up? A lot of times, especially in pro sport, you might get an athlete that gets crunched in the game and they're banged up. They don't want to tell anybody because they want to be in the lineup still. And, you know, this is a way to have a conversation with an athlete. When you see some of these changes in these variables, it, it could potentially be something that's uh, controllable, you know, just a fatigue factor, or it could be something that may be underlying that needs to be addressed from the medical staff. And so um, from that perspective, I think it's something that you can truly use to help the athlete. And when it comes to training, I think, the way the way we've used that when we have an athlete come in for the first day is let's assess them let's put them on the force plates let's put them through their intake process and let's at least get a baseline from them on on what that athlete looks like that day but no matter what they look that like that day we put them through what we call a foundations program our foundations program gives them a healthy dose of all of the qualities that we start to kind of unpackage as we get into those uh, more granular phases. And so that foundations program really exposes where their strengths and weaknesses lie. And then we reassess them three weeks later at that three week assessment point. We know that over these three weeks for these four or five days per week, we, we have these loads, these movements, and these uh, patterns that you've been going through this is what you look like now. This is our true baseline for you. This is now the program that you live in until we see you increase these qualities and you're able to do these things that are important for us to clear you into the next phase. Once you clear into that phase, now we reassess and we look at what your next weakest value is. So we're constantly reassessing our athletes and we're using those reassessments to either progress or keep in that, uh, keep that athlete in that phase or regress when we, if we're seeing uh, a drop-off where we're want, wanting to see an increase. So um, I, I would say that that reassessment process is key. Uh, but when you have enough data on athlete, those, those variables can be used more, more so than just making adaptations um, to your changes to your program based off adaptations. You can use them to have deeper layer conversations on readiness and, you know, what, whatever might be happening with the athlete that is not uh, apparent to the coach from just watching them move. Yeah, I think it's spot on there. The test is the training. The test is the training. And again, if you don't have a platform to be able to call back and look at those things and again, find those weaknesses, figure out what needs to be improved. And again, some things you cannot, 
the savvy vet who's been playing for 15 years, you might be preventing loss. And that's totally cool. Um, the 18 year old, the 16 year old who just signed their first contract, there's a lot more development going on, but if you don't have meaningful numbers, you don't have numbers at all. And I, I, I remember you know, having conversations with other coaches about, you know, okay, well, we're going to use flight time as a, to tell us what our vert is. Well, okay. Cause that, that's, that's not what that is. And, and make sure it's a proxy. And, you know, as soon as that one person, you know, changes the way that they pick their feet up or they start doing stuff, you're now making decisions on faulty data, which to me, I've always said, I think that's worse than having no data at all um, sure. because you start to lose the trust of the athlete. I think you start to lose the trust of the coaching staff. You know, if everybody's great in testing and these are the numbers that you said they needed to get and then they don't perform, um, they'll, the coaches will stop doing the test. They'll probably call five of their friends, find out what they're doing. And then now they're going to tell you, you need to do that as well. And I think that, again, you just bring up the idea of intent. Transparency is another word that I think it's interesting that you use that everybody has to be bought in. And the beautiful thing about physics and biology is it is what it is. And there's no need to get upset about it. And well, what if they have a bad testing? Well, in your scenario, they can't really have a bad testing because it's three weeks of a bad testing. And if someone has a bad testing for three weeks, we probably need to have a larger conversation because there is probably things that they're good at, things that they excel at. And then you as the practitioners really viewing them as a Rubik's cube to figure out what can we do to move one step closer, uh, one step faster. I, I remember one of my bosses back in the day, um, in Boston and, you know, people would walk in and they'd say, you know, I want to drop 30 pounds and he'd say, okay, how much time we got? And they'd be like, you know, three or four weeks. And he'd be like, cool. And just deadpan straight face and say, I recommend amputation because yeah. that's the only way I can guarantee you're going to get that off. And of course he's joking, but I think that, that those conversations, I, if coach hands you a player and you look and you're like, wow, we got work to do. Um, you know, it's going to be a long-term build out you need to be measuring every three weeks, you know, that assessment of, well, how did your cycle go and where do you need to, you know, pull on a certain lever to, to make either greater changes um, or not um, fall back again uh, and write a program that maybe is less effective um, because they are all interconnected in everything that you do. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think, I mean, I had a, an example today, we had a new NBA player come in and went through some uh, testing and intake and, you know, this, this guy doesn't know me. Um, you know, he's there because his agent is uh, telling him he needs to come there. And, you know, we go through this testing and, you know, the, the only way for me to really get this athlete to see that this is the right place for them is, you know, that old, that old saying is the numbers don't lie. Right. We talked to him, we tested him. We said, Here, here's your numbers. These are what they mean. And we have some work and things that we can improve on. And, you know, this is how we're going to do it for you. Now that that's, what's going to allow this athlete to make that decision on, do I want to train with these guys because they have this ability to use this to help me. And then when they trust, once they get their, uh, you know, they get into the program, they start going through the work with us. They start to trust us. Then we will have their, their full buy-in. But right now, like I can't just get a guy coming in and say, you should trust me because he tells you to come here and then, you know, start training with us. We have to provide them with some sort of roadmap and this you know, having data and, and a lot of history of using technology and that data to be able to give examples is a really valuable asset. And that to me is, um, you know, more, it, it's, it's more valuable to me than, um, you know, 
than anything really right now is because all these new athletes that are coming into the, uh, to the gym are people that we need to gain their trust, but they have the option not to be there. They are not forced to be there. So we have to provide them with some sort of roadmap or you know, GPS of, uh, uh, in terms of what we're going to be doing with them so they can see, okay, is this the right place for me to be or not? And, um, you know, hopefully by that point, you know, they're able to make that decision. And then once they train with us, we, we generally feel like we get their trust. Yeah. And I think that's one of the areas too, that for collegiate, for the collegiate setting, I mean, you might have an individual who's a senior who's had three strength coaches and it's crazy that we all live in the same arena in the same industry, but it can be, could be three completely different approaches, completely different philosophies. And, and that environment, it's a lot harder to walk away because again, you become an extension of the staff and you become an extension of the program, but in the private sector setting, I just don't like you. I don't want to give you money. I don't want to, to do the things that way. Cause that hurts. And so, uh, you know, or I just have had, I've not had good success with it. So I think, um, that's really important, but you know, I, I don't know, I, I, moving forward in the field, most sport coaches, uh, they kind of view, okay, they're going to go to the weight room and they're going to, they're going to lift very few sport coaches can tell you, yeah, the guys are going to go in. They got to focus on their, you know, repeatability that today we're working on breaking phase. We're working on this. We're working on force. We're working on, um, you know, whatever soft tissue, um, getting everybody on that same page is so important, but where do you start? I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times, and again, you have experience with it, but I'm a high school coach. I'm a, you know, I just got hired as a division one coach or D three or any level. Um, and I'm handed a dumpster fire. We are out of shape. We are not good. There's, you know, there's, uh, you know, I've been tasked with trying to turn this around. Where do I start? And again, I realize each sport's different, but if you could just even go through just some universal starting points that again, you will over time figure out what works best for your team, your position, but where do you even start with this stuff? And, and is it going to take a year to, to even get my feet underneath me? Are there some, or are there some immediate changes um, that can be had from, from the data? Yeah, I think the, the the simplest way to go about that is to figure out what what things that you're trying to um, measure have the most literature to support that. And I feel like with the counter movement jump, for example, it's a really easy way for someone to put that in any setting, right? You can you can put that at the, the pro level, you can put it in the private sector, you, you can put it, you know, even it, at the middle school level, I feel like you can instill a system that allows the, the coach to simplify as much as they need to in terms of what they're looking at, but they can also uh, look at as much depth as they need to in terms of um, the, the things that they feel are most important. So I feel like find the test that provides the most literature to support it uh, kind of room jumps a great example and and then use those different uh, pieces of literature look uh, read blogs look, listen to podcasts and and start to look at things that that people that are doing this on a daily basis are are looking at and maybe start to investigate three to five metrics at most and collect that information get comfortable with the system and once you do that and you're able to seamlessly operate your system and pull that data off and start to have a conversation around what these things mean, you can start to see trends in your athletes. You can start to tie into your programming, what you feel you thought was going to happen and see if those things actually happened. And that's where, um, you know, that's how I started. And I feel like you can get to that point and feel comfortable and then you can add more metrics or you can add another test. You know, there's a lot of different tests that you can do on the force play, the mid-thigh pulls, a fairly simple test to do. 
the ASH test. These are the very simple tests to do with athletes that are not invasive and that can provide you with a lot of usable information. Um, but I, I would definitely recommend to anybody that's listening, that's not using force place or even people that are start simple, be Spartan with your approach. You know, five metrics is where I started and now I'm looking at several metrics and I feel like that's the, the easiest way to really integrate this into your system, but most importantly, make it a part of your environment. Don't separate the force plates or the technology from your training environment. If you can do it, keep it part of the environment, make it, a, make it just what you do around there, make it part of your culture. And that's my, I think my, my best suggestion for, um, you know, a starting point for, for people that are listening. Yeah. I mean, any team I've ever taken over, there's usually so many layers, the problem. So it takes, you know, two to three years to turn a program around, get yourself an anchor. And again, as you know, you mentioned, there's so many things you could do, even if it's something as simple as just peak power, make it a carnival, put your hands on your hips, do your jump or with hands, whatever it is, make it a game, make it exciting because anytime you're turning a program around that will take time. Maybe you need just better recruits as a coach. But what you can do is say, regardless of how we are in season, I want this number to go up and work with your staff. And, and again, if it's not that, maybe it's, it's something else, but pick one thing and then be consistent. Oftentimes turning a program around, Hey, we're going to do this. And you know, this is going to work in this new shiny thing. And then, you know, the next thing over here, we're going to try this and that didn't work. And so you start throwing things against the wall. I think you really start losing uh, faith and trust into the athletes of, what you're actually doing. So make sure you pick something that's consistent. I know for, you know, even going back to my very early days, everybody jumped just because everybody gets hyped. And, and even if the, the numbers are terrible, somebody starts hooting and hollering and they start going crazy. And again, it creates an environment. I think that's the greatest gift at the weight room, regardless of what the weather is outside win-loss record, the weight room should be hopping. People should be excited. And we'd always joke. It's always sunny and 70 in the weight room. It's all positive. Yeah. And if you give maximal effort and you give maximal intent, you're good. And you can find the time for that. I mean, I, I, this is another thing too, is, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time. You need to, you need to invest time. And I think that when you talk about standardizing metrics, even if it's attendance, you know, we would grade, you know, the, each workout a zero, you know, one, two, three, you know, zero, you didn't show up. You didn't lift one, you physically consumed oxygen and hopefully through osmosis, you will get better Two, You did what we asked you to do and did a little better. Uh, and then most importantly, if you got a three, um, you made somebody else better. And again, we took that from, again, some of the old Husker power legacy stuff and, and really found that that was incredible because when you can start having a culture where everyone's helping each other, the metrics are going to take care of them. So biology is biology. You yeah. lift, you will get better. But if you have a crappy culture, if you don't have direction, if you don't have transparency, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't think anything else matters. You, you need to establish that. And that's stuff that takes minutes that takes right. days and you can do it at every level, you know, force plates, people often get really scared or they, you know, I don't know, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm excited. We had our first middle school um, sign up. So now in middle school, they're doing the force plates. And I can tell you right now, you go ask those kids what their relative peak breaking for They don't know. They just think it's fun. It's a cool toy. And I beat my yeah. number. And I think another thing on technology that allows you to celebrate individual success uh, I'm sure if I walked into your weight room or into your center, you're not really comparing people to other people. It's about you. It's about that individualization and understanding that if they bring maximum attention to detail and massive, you know, amounts of intent each and every day, they can believe in that process and, and get to where they want to go. So I don't know, it's, it's certainly an exciting time. And I think that, you know, the field will change drastically here in the next five to 10 years, because suddenly now 
we've got the ability um, to really dive deep and give clarity to areas um, you know, that previously was kind of like, well, I hope it works. You know, we went from being apprenticeships to, you know, I trained under this person. I'm a disciple of so-and-so, you know, which to me is the equivalent of, I stuck my head outside today. looks pretty sunny, not realizing yeah. this impending thunderstorms coming. I think data is really not as scary as people make it out to be. And, and again, if you uh, buy into it uh, very quickly, you can, you know, help your program and ultimately your athletes, which is what I think everybody got into coaching for in the first place. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, you, you said that better than I could have. So I agree. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, again, if anybody's listening, we've got, um, we'll have different links um, in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. You can check us out online. We're on Instagram. You can reach out to us directly on the site. So take a look. We'd love to hear from you. And again, too, uh, we're excited to present these different presentations throughout the course of the summer. If you've got any questions, um, again, our, our goal is to kind of help and enlighten both our customers and kind of the field as a, as a whole. We'd love to hear those questions and maybe we'll pick a few next time to kind of walk through them. But again, I appreciate whether you're in the car at home or at work taking the time to listen to us um and we look forward to talking to you guys soon talk to you later